0: Earlier this week, uh, I had to go get something notarized, uh, you know, one of those documents that you need, like, a a legal witness. You pay somebody a little bit of money, and they stamp on there. Yeah, I, I saw this person. I verified their identity. You know, they asked me for my driver's license, and so I showed them my driver's license. You know, that thing that has your photo, your birth date, your eye color, your height, and something that's close to your weight at some point in time, right? I know my weight on there is not quite what what it is now. Christmas time. But as I as I handed the ID and as I was thinking about this week, all those little pieces of data on that driver's license, my identity card. Is that who I am? Well, as we turn to Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. For our Christmas Day message, that question of who am I is front and center. As God answers that through these words of the Apostle Paul to a certain people hundreds of years ago, he answers the question that still matters to us today, identity is a big deal. We talk about identity politics, gender identity. We have to prove our identity, and there's identity theft. All of these ways that identity pops up. It might look a little different than it did hundreds of years ago, but that underlying question, who am I, is profound. And as we look at this text today, and the story of Christmas in particular, the answer to that question is provided in a surprising but also really satisfying way, a life-changing way. If you would read with me Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. This is God's Word. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons lord we thank you for your word that it is trustworthy and true i pray as we look at it today that you would help us answer that question who am i It may be a different way than we have before as we recognize what the Christmas story has to do with each one of us. Meet us here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we we do use that word identity a fair amount, and I wonder if you've ever really thought about what it means. It comes from, originally, uh, the idea of the quality from the, de- from the dictionary here, the quality of being identical. It comes from a Latin word that meant the same, essentially. And so if someone steals your identity, then they're going to pretend to be the same as you, right? So we're aware of that. They want to steal your money or do other bad things in your name, pretending they're the same as you. So what do we do? We don't don't share our Social Security number, right? We don't answer phone calls and provide credit card information. We're careful how we shop online, right? We're, We're protective of our identity and the information that could be stolen. But as we do that, you might keep your finances safe, But you could still lose your identity. How how might that happen? You might lose what's most fundamental, important to you. You might miss the answer to the question, who am I, if you focus too much on those things and never think more deeply beyond your height or your weight or your eye color. Or your ability in sports or your grades in school or the school you went to or the plans that you have for the future or the great things that you've done in life. You know, you're more than those things. But that is what we form our identity on, is it not? We, we really uh, find our identity in sports teams, perhaps. Anyone do that? Anyone familiar with sports teams that might disappoint you? Say, losing to the Cowboys or something like that. Ooh. Sorry if you taped it and hadn't watched it yet. <laughs> Spoiler. Save you the time and the heartbreak. You know, those, that's the thing with finding our identity in stuff like that. You know, in our grades, academically, in the, in the school that we went to, in our looks, our appearance, Our achievements, you know, when our weight changes, if our hope is in being a certain size and body style, having a six pack or 12 pack or a whole case, as I told Pastor William this morning, I got a whole case in here. That's not the way it's supposed to be, right? If we put our hope in those things, if we say this is who I am, I'm the one who has the fit body, I'm the one who has this great grades, I'm the one who can do this with a soccer ball. If we if we put our hope and our identity, all those things into that, you know, we're going to be disappointed because the team is going to get beat, because our bodies are going to age and not be able to do what they were once able to do. Somebody's going to get better grades, someone's going to be a better athlete better-looking, and that, that place we'll find, we'll find ourselves miserable and it will expose that that's not who we are. And as the Christmas story enters in there, that's what it's pointing at, that, that question of identity. The most fundamental aspect of who you are is your relationship with God. That's what the Christmas story is all about. That God sent His Son into the world so that you can have a fulfilling relationship with God. That you can find your identity, your meaning, purpose, all that is most precious and underlies all of the other things we do. That you might find that in a relationship with God. So that's the call for us today. As we look at this passage, to make our, our relationship with God our primary identity. Whatever else is going on, those things are fine in and of themselves. But the number one place we ought to find our identity is in that relationship with God. In particular, that we would be children of God. And we'll talk about what it means, but this passage even says that we would be sons of God. And there's a reason he says sons and and not children or sons and daughters, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But that idea of being a child of God is so central. It ought to form our identity. The great theologian J.I. Packer said, "If if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls worship and prayer, his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That identity as God's child is the key to weathering all those other things that don't measure up. It's how you handle your team losing, how it handles your body aging, how you handle maybe your your mind not functioning like it did, how you handle broken relationships, not only your own failures, but the things that happen to you. The way you handle that is to find your identity in that relationship with God. And how how do we make that happen? Well, today I just want to unpack the Christmas story here in our passage. Revisit the Christmas story to to reorient your identity and your relationship with God. The first thing we'll see is that God sent His Son down. God sent His Son down sharing our nature. God sent His Son down sharing our nature. Look at verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. This is the mystery of the incarnation, right? Of God taking on flesh. That God sent His Son, born of a woman. God took on human nature. God united Himself to humanity forever. There's a lot of mystery in that. That God sent His Son the one who is God, the one who shares that divine nature, that God nature, sent His Son into the world to be born of a woman that He might have a human nature. Jesus now and forever has a God nature and a human nature. He's one person with these two natures combined. They don't get mixed up. They don't all get corrupted or anything like that. He's one person. He's the God-man those two natures together forever. God sent His Son down, sharing our nature to fully identify with us. That He would become like us. Very similar. The same in terms of humanity as we are. He came down, though, not only to share our nature, but He came to share our status. He came to share our status. Look at verse 4 again. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus came born under the law, sharing our status. You know, The law of God is what it is because of who God is and who we are. His nature, God's nature, determined those laws that they would make sense to you and I as human beings. And this passage is saying that that when God came down, God sent His Son down to share our status, that He put Himself under the law. One commentator puts it this way, Jesus sur- surrendered those privileges that belonged to deity to be in God, and assumed the role of a slave, even to the extent of being obedient to God under the law. He did not have to do that. He chose to do that, to identify with you and me, to become like us, to be the same. Under the law. God sent his son down to share your nature. Becoming human. To share your status. Under the law. Called to obey. It's only by fully identifying with you and I. Becoming the same. That Jesus could take care of our most serious problem. And that leads us to the second point here. That Jesus came down. God sent his son down. To lift you up. God sent his son down to lift you up that you would be bought back from slavery. Look at verse 5. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. God sent His Son down that He might lift you up, buying you back from slavery. And in particular, what He's talking about is this word redeem. It has several senses, but here it it means to buy back from slavery. To purchase someone who is in debt to the point where they can't pay it back, so they have sold themselves over. That that idea of slavery in those days was most common. You you were a slave in the time of of Paul's writings here in the first century, most likely because you were in debt, you were poor, and you could never pay back what you owed. So you would give yourself over as a servant, as a slave. Theoretically, if you earned enough, you could pay it back, but chances are you're never going to pay that debt back. The other other way most people became slaves in those days was being a a prisoner of war. You would be taken back to the other country and a slave. Very, very rarely, in fact, it was outlawed for the most part, was there a slavery along the lines of what you and I probably think of as the colonial slave trade, man-stealing, that type of slavery. That's not the sense here. The sense of someone who is in debt, who has a debt that if it could be paid off, they would be free. If, if someone had enough money to pay it all off, they would no longer have to serve this Master. And the image that Paul is using here is that it is our debt to God that keeps us enslaved. That, that we are in fact slaves to sin. And we can't serve any other master. And we could never pay back the debt that we have built up and owed to God. But for the fact that God sent His Son down to lift you up, that you might be brought back, bought back from slavery. He puts it this way in Galatians 3.13. Just you're reading in your Bible, just a little bit further back from where we are in chapter 4, he says in Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that Jesus took the curse due to us. He took... the debts of our sin, the wages that we have earned for sinning. He took that all upon Himself on the tree. Paul uses that language. On the cross. That your debt might be paid in full. That you might no longer have sin as your master. But be free. Free to serve God. To to have that relationship with God that He intended for you to have. That you might find your identity no longer as someone who only does wrong and knows that God's wrath awaits. to someone who is doing what is right imperfectly, but repentantly. Who makes progress and falls back, but ultimately knows you're free. And you're trying to learn new habits. Having been bought back with the precious blood of Jesus God would lift you up. That you'd be bought back from slavery and also that you would be brought near as sons. Start again at verse 4. Read the whole passage again. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, notice this phrase, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time came, this is is God's plan. It's always been His plan. There was a time that God planned to send His Son and everything in history leading up to that moment led up to that moment. God was orchestrating everything behind the scenes. There was no part of the plan that did not come about. He says as much in Acts 2.23 and Acts 4.27-28 that the people who put Jesus to death on the cross did so according to God's foreordained plan and purposes. God was not surprised at the death of Jesus on the cross. He didn't have to go, oh, wow, now I need plan B. My Savior got killed. No, the death of Jesus was always a part of the plan to buy us back, to set us free, that He might bring us near to Him. In fact, Paul says those amazing words in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, which is also nearby. If you just flip, I flip a couple pages and I'm there. He says in Ephesians, One, at the end of verse four, in love, verse five, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, so, or to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption. We're bought back through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses or sins according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. That this plan of God would bring us near, would restore all that's broken, would take away our debt, Pay the full penalty. You know, we've got our bank account. You know, our credit card debt is through the roof. The interest, we could never pay it back. We're making minimum payments for all of eternity. Never going to make it back. And God says, look, I'll write a check. And it's paid in full. And the currency is not Bitcoin or cash. It's the blood of Jesus. Jesus. The one who is God and man. God and humanity together. The one who is like us. This is why, as you look at the baby in the manger, you you have to understand that this is not just a cute little baby. It's not just a super special person, human being. This is God. Come down. God who has humbled himself to to unite to humanity and, and put himself in the place of a little baby. That he might grow up living perfectly like we never have, that he might grow up doing always what is right. So that we might be brought near as sons. The word here in uh, the end of verse 5, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's actually one word, adoption as sons. Uh, in the Greek, it's a compound word from two words. One means son, as in male, child, male descendant of someone. The other word is position or, or, or place or put. And essentially it's to say, you know, I'm going to put you as a son. I'm going to place you as a son. Uh, we would use a different word, adoption, to say you are now my son. You are now my child. The definition as someone has written, To formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. That's God's plan here, that you would be brought near as sons. And, And we say sons... And that's, that's somewhat, you know, if, if you have your antenna up, if you're maybe under the age of, of 30 or so, that is probably ah, grating on you the same way as I've said, you know, God and man together. Why isn't it human, right? We're very sensitive to these things now. And I really appreciate that in a lot of ways, that we want to make sure we affirm human beings, men and women, created in God's image. But the picture here and the language of sons is, is something in particular. It strikes perhaps as offensive. Maybe we'd want to say children of God, sons and daughters. But someone has puts it this way, I think, very helpfully. If we are too quick to correct the biblical language, we might miss the revolutionary nature of what Paul is saying. And we need to understand the context he is writing in. In the most ancient cultures, they continue, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, son meant legal heir and was a status forbidden to women. The Gospel tells us we are all sons of God in Christ. If we don't let Paul say to women, in Christ, you too are sons, you also are heirs, then we miss how radical a claim this is. Because he's not just saying you get to be a child. He's saying you get to be the one who inherits it all. That you are the one with position. That you are the one who has privileges. That you are the one who is blessed, you might say. That all that the Father has, He gives to the Son. And that includes men and women. As we put our faith in Jesus, we are treated as that Son. Paul says it back in Galatians 3.26. Near the end of that chapter, right before where we're reading, Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, he says, you're clothed yourselves with Christ. In verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. Our identity is as those who have access. Look what Paul says back in chapter 4, right after our passage, verse 6. Because you are sons, so the end of verse 5, this all happened that you might receive the adoption as sons, verse 6. Because you're sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts saying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That that you have access to the God of the universe. The God who spoke and light was created. The God who spoke all things into existence. The one who upholds all things by His power. You have access to this one. In fact, you can say, Abba, Father. You can call Him Dad. You know, those kind of intimate words. That if your faith is in Christ, that's the access you have. It has huge implications for prayer. One one theologian says, this is what prayer really means, knowing that we have a secure relationship with God in which we can address Him in the knowledge that He cares and has the power to aid us. Jesus encourages us to pray simply He continues, this distinguishes the child of God from the hypocrite. The hypocrite is so unsure of his relationship with God, and rightly so, that he thinks of prayer in terms of its length and eloquence. The child of God knows he's speaking to the Father and talks simply and directly. What are your prayers like? You know, are you talking to God as if, you know, you're trying to impress him? Are you talking to God as if maybe you know He was the mean boss you had in the past or overly strict father that you had? You know, are, are you afraid and cautious or are you treating Him as the one who cares for you? The one who has the power to help you? The one who knows you actually better than you? He's seen you grow up. In fact, His plan was for you from the foundation of the earth to now He knows you and the plans He has for you. What are your prayers like? it depends on your identity, right? If you can still consider yourself an orphan, if you still think I don't really have much of a relationship with God, he says to you, look at what I have done. I have sent my son down that he would be like you, that to lift you up that you might be like him. This is the beauty of the Christmas story. That God would exchange you for Jesus and Jesus for you. That God would look on you from now on as He looks on Jesus. That He would be pleased with you. That He would care for you. He's still high and holy and unapproachable, but now you have access. He looks on you as His child, as His Son, the one who will inherit everything. The one who has the rights to it all. So you can be honest when you speak to Him. If you read through the psalms, you see the things that the King David especially says, but even some of the other psalmists. and You go, wow, I, I'm, can you talk to God like that? How long, O oh Lord? He says things like that. Lord, are you asleep? Will you let in, uh, injustice triumph forever, Lord? Do you not care? Look at the way Job wrestles with God and cries out. You might get rebuked, But that's the mindset we ought to be cultivating that really, I could say anything to God. Because you know, He already knows what's in your heart anyway. And it's important to express that. And in fact, especially to express it to Him that He might help you. That might include correcting you. That might include giving you what you want. It might include giving you something even better. It might include having you wait. That you, that you might be in the pattern of Jesus when the night when He was betrayed prayed, you know, God, is there not some other way that this cup might pass from me? That, 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 is there not another way that we can do this, that I don't have to suffer not merely the physical death in His humanity, but that alienation bearing the wrath of God on our behalf? Is there not another way that I don't have to have a A broken relationship with you, Father, somehow. And he ended that prayer with what? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. He could lift that prayer up. He could speak sincerely and honestly. God and man together. And so can you. So can you. God sent his son down to lift you up. God sent His Son to take on your nature and your status. God sent Him to lift you up, buying you back from slavery, bringing you near as sons. So here's how you should answer the question, Who am I? You turn it into your own words, but pattern something after this. Who am I? I am a child of God. I'm a son of God. And my Father looks on me with pleasure like He's looking at Jesus. Can you imagine that? Two times in Matthew's Gospel, there's a voice from heaven who says, this is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. You can apply, if your faith is in Jesus, you can apply that to yourself. Say, I am the one with whom God is well pleased. My father watches over me with a plan as secure as the one that brought Jesus into the world. And when I feel weak and vulnerable, my father is watching over me. I am just as safe as the baby Jesus in that manger. I am just as loved and attended to as God who sent His angels to announce the birth of this Son. That that I am cared for so much that God would do that to come in the flesh into those humble circumstances that He might meet me in this humble place that He might lift me up. That's how God sees you. That's your identity if you are in Jesus you can say to yourself, when I feel like a failure, my Father is still pleased with me. He sees the perfect life of Jesus. Think that through. This, this week, maybe make it a, a, a plan for the new year that you would craft some sort of statement that, that you know, captures your identity. Who am I? And it starts with, I'm, I'm a child of God. I'm the Son of God. And my Father looks on me and sees what? And when I struggle with what? I know that He still loves me the way He loves Jesus. That He cares for me the way He cares for His plans for Jesus. That He will work all things together for my good. Craft that in your own way. Make that identity yours. Embrace the Christmas story. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is amazing that that you would do all of this for us. I pray for those who have wandered from your ways, those who have lost their identity, not because they shared the wrong information, Lord, but because they're not believing the right information. Those who don't understand that if their faith is in Jesus, it's enough. That all that Jesus did and all that Jesus is, is credited to them. And you're working that out in them that they might grow into it. Lord, I look forward to the new year and we start this series of looking at how we become spiritually healthy. What a great place to start with our identity. That we are yours. You want what's best for us. Lord, change us, transform us. Help us to believe that we are your sons. That you look on us with pleasure. Even when we fail, you provide for us. You might rebuke us. You might correct us. But you are always doing good for us always wanting what is best for us, and always looking at us with a Father's love. Lord, sink that truth down into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.